Hello, and welcome to Seroptimus International Voices, where we give a global voice to women and girls. SI Voices is a space where women's stories and issues are heard as we celebrate 100 years of our remarkable organization. We will reveal and rediscover the history of our global movement while educating and informing on many of the key challenges affecting women and girls today. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our podcast today. Uh, my name is Hilary Ratcliffe, and I'm a seroptimist. I've been a seroptimist for many years, but the thing that drew me to seroptimism was that it is seroptimist international. And for me, it's the international dimension that has made me stay with seroptimist, enjoy it, and really feel that I'm trying to, to do things that are relevant and important through this seroptimist international connection. Now, I'm going to have as my guest today someone who's very important. She's the Director of Advocacy at Sir Optimist International. But I know Bev, this is Bev Berker, her absolute passion is the international element of Sir Optimism. So I'd like to ask you, Bev, can you explain how you first became involved and introduced to the idea of Sir Optimism? I think it's something to do with a canoe. Do tell me about it. Well, Hillary, it, it, it's actually a very funny and interesting story. But um, I was a world traveler and I did a lot of adventure traveling. And I took a trip to um, Irian Jaya, which today is called West Papua, uh, New Guinea. And uh, it was a very difficult trip. And on that trip, I met a woman whose name was Cherry, is Cherry Phillips. And um, she asked all the women a series of questions like, you know, what is your occupation? Are you married? Uh, do you belong to any service clubs? And I remember saying to the group, these are certainly very strange questions. I feel like I'm being interviewed. Well, little did I know, but I was being interviewed. Um, Terry was a passionate seroptimist, and she could um, sell seroptimist to anyone. So the day when we were going to travel down the river in a canoe, we were told that we would be uh, on the river for eight hours. We would not be getting off because the banks were quicksand. Uh, so we needed to be prepared. Well, Terry talked to me about Seroptimus for eight hours. And by the time I got to the end of the journey, I said, please, please tell me, how, how can I join this wonderful organization? And her response was, well, uh, we're by invitation only, so uh, you'll have to wait for the invitation. I was really let down, but uh, a year later, I was formally invited to Seroptimist after going to many meetings. And then my first year as a Seroptimist, I attended the Seroptimist International Americas Convention in Cincinnati. And at that convention, I met two remarkable Seroptimists who we have heard from and about in another podcast. One of them was Dr. Janine Jacmin, and then the other one was the incoming president of SI, Marie-Jean Bossier-Berberet. And I'm sorry, I'm, I, I probably killed her name in French. But anyway, um, Marie-Jeanne explained Project Siam to all the seroptimists in the Chicago area. And for me, that was the hook. It was such a wonderful project, and it had to do with trafficking. 
And I'm amazed now that we were working on projects regarding trafficking before we even called it trafficking. Hillary, you probably know a little bit more about this. Yes, certainly. I uh, was very interested and involved in this project in Thailand. Uh, it was called SIAM, because that's the old name for Thailand, and that stood for Seroptimist International AIDS Mediation. And what was happening in Thailand at the time were there many villages with um, very, very poor people in them, and many of the um, parents, desperate for money for the family, would uh, offer their girls to go into Bangkok to work in Bangkok. They didn't realize that these girls were then going to be trafficked into the sex trade. So they let the girls leave the villages, go into Bangkok, where they were traded into the sex trade. And this project was to try and provide um, funding in the villages, training and work in the villages so that the girls could stay in the village, the family could earn money, and the girls didn't end up in the sex trade in Bangkok. And I've never forgotten my first introduction to that was at a conference where a woman I now know very well, she's from Yorkshire, she was a headmistress at the time of a primary school, quite a small, very dynamic Yorkshire woman, and she stood up on this stage and challenged us, and we were at that time, I think most of us in the audience had never heard of trafficking, and we never, never, it wasn't part of our understanding at all, um, and we were challenged about this project. And I remember her talking about this uh, hotel that they had persuaded in central Bangkok to actually support this project. And they'd actually put a carpet down in the main foyer of the hotel and the decoration in the carpet were condoms. And then I went uh, on a visit to Thailand and I went up to Chiang Rai, which is in the north of the country. And we went to a cafe run by the project where they actually um, they, they used the, the people, the girls to work in the cafe to earn money and they sold products that the, the girls in the villages had made through this project. And the cafe had the most wonderful name of cabbages and condoms. And when you walked into the main foyer of the uh, cafe, there was a huge figure, a lovely, lovely model. But when you looked closely at it, the whole model was made of condoms to get the point over that safe sex, uh, not sex trafficking, was what we should be working towards. So to me, that was an amazing project. And for me, that really fired my international um, understanding and wanting to work internationally as well. But I think, Bev, you and I both met each other um, when we were traveling to Sierra Leone. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that project, which was called Project Sierra, and our journey to Sierra Leone together? Well, Hillary, um, Project Sierra was probably one of the highlights of, of my uh, life as a seroptimist. Um, I, I was always interested from that first meeting in international work and uh, in my local club, which was Seroptimist International of Chicago. Um, we did a lot of work with um, within our own federation working with Cochabamba. But when I saw Project Sierra and the opportunity to apply and travel on that study tour. Um, I was uh, so excited. I put in my application and I was told I was, uh, well, I was not accepted at first, but I was the, I was the first one on the list in case anybody dropped out. And to my great luck, someone did drop out. Um, so I traveled to London and um, I didn't know President Sharon very well. 
but um, she did attend my conference when I was governor. And when I saw her name on the list, I asked her if she would join me in uh, London for a few days before we would um, take off for um, Sierra Leone. Um, and as, as far as our meeting, I'll, I'll just never forget, you know, the disappointment of getting to the airport and um, the day that it snowed in London and waiting and all of the flights being canceled. But that one to Sierra Leone remained uh, on the board. So we were all really excited that we were going. And then at the very last minute, it was canceled. So um, Hillary came to the rescue and you um, called your theroptimist, your husband, and he immediately got dinner ready. And you invited the whole group of us to come to your house where um, Sharon and I slept in your bed. Um, so um, when we got to Sierra Leone, we, we really only had four days, but um, it was just a wonderful experience and the four days really seemed uh like like much more because so much was was crammed in by uh ellison sutherland and uh our guide lois and um our guide from uh, hope and homes for children so um it was a marvelous opportunity um hillary you you want to give a little bit more information about that Yes, we certainly did. As you say, we, we got stuck in London with the snow and we had to spend two days, instead of being in uh, Freetown and Sierra Leone in lovely hot weather, we were actually in freezing cold St Albans with the snow. And I remember having to find jumpers for the group and there were eight of us in the group uh, because nobody had any warm clothes with them. But we did, as Bev said, we did eventually get to Sierra Leone and then we packed everything into a very short time. So we felt as though we were driving all over the country visiting projects. But I, I think the thing that stays, two things particularly stay in my mind. One is when we arrived at the first project where the girls um, who had been in Sierra Leone, they had actually been involved in the civil war and many of them had actually been raped as an act of war. Uh, they got pregnant and they were probably 15, 14, 15 years old when this happened to them. Um, they had a baby that they were trying to bring up but no form of income. And so the project was involved in setting up nurseries for the babies, but also then training for the girls so that they could earn money to actually care for their own baby. And it was run rather like a, a, a sort of school and they were all in a uniform and they were all trained and they were living together and cared for together. And I remember we drove into the school uh, the area where they were living at the time and all the girls were dressed in yellow t-shirts and green skirts and they sang as we drove in and I think none of us will ever forget it they all just sang thank you thank you thank you Mr Optimists and the whole time we were in Sierra Leone we were made very aware of the, the what we were trying to do which was you know small small steps forward to help this project but all that we could do was making that amazing difference and one of the key things was trying to get the girls accepted back into their village because they'd been thrown out of the village because they'd brought disgrace to the village by getting pregnant when they weren't married uh, not their fault it was an act of war but to try and recreate the village community allow the girls back in and i'll never forget one girl showing us she'd learned how to be a mechanic 
and she'd she'd gone into the army and she was showing us how to strip down an engine um, so that she could earn money and she was using that to care for her child and I think that was just um, for, for me certainly it was a, a mind a, a, a mind changing time in my life actually seeing how we could we could affect change in a, a particular way. And I think that's what I remember, probably what you remember, Bev. I think you have the story of the Paramount Chief, don't you? Yes. Uh, one of the things that I remember that made a big impression for me is when we had our meeting with the Paramount Chief. And what he said to us is that um, he understands, they understand the importance of including women in the decision-making process. And that... Um, he has women as part of his council and women will remain an important part of that council. He also said, which really impressed me, that when your work is done and your project is finished, we will continue this work because we understand the importance of women in decision-making and we understand the importance of working together to make a better life for everyone. Uh, that was really important. Yes, I think I think that's what both of us are passionate about, isn't it? Trying to change things, and and because we are uh, a, a, what I would call a grassroots organisation, we try and work through the grassroots. In other words, our communities on the ground to put in place projects to change attitudes, and then we take those projects. Uh, up to the higher level and that goes to the international level which is obviously representing through the United Nations and we do have representation at the United Nations this is what we call uh, general status at the Economic and Social Council in the United Nations and this allows us to speak at United Nations meetings to try and, and influence member states. We don't make decisions but we can actually try and influence member states and we do that from the knowledge that we have of grassroots projects like Project Siam or like Project Sierra or the other projects that both Bev and I have, have been involved with or known about. So Bev, can you just explain a little bit about um, perhaps the United Nations structures that we have very briefly, because we are represented at seven centres, I believe now. Yes, Hillary, you're right. Uh, we are in seven centres now, and we work with many groups, um, the ma Women's Major Group, the NGO Major Group, um, the Group on Aging, and many others. And uh, Seraptimist is known for their grassroots work in local communities. What we do is um, we work two ways. We work top down where the UN reps feed us information about the major themes and focus for the UN, including the Sustainable Development Goals and uh, Beijing Platform for Action. And then we take the information from projects and we work bottom up. In our main reports, we include all this project information from the uh, work that clubs do at the local level, and we report that back to the UN. Seroptimus has a great reputation as a grassroots organization. And when I have traveled to the UN centers, um, the when I do presentations or when we talk about our work at the UN, Everyone is impressed that we are in so many countries and so many communities and the amount of work that we do in um, 
our local work and local communities. So uh, basically, that's the importance of our grassroots work. It really shows the UN um, how we as an organization make a difference on the ground for women and girls. And I think that's so important, isn't it, that uh, that, that we're recognised? Because I find often if I'm out just meeting people and you say I'm a seroptimist and sometimes you get a blank look and people really don't know what you are. But if you're walking around the UN centres, as I did, like you, um, as a seroptimist, we are recognised, we are known. You do not have to explain what seroptimist international is because we are actually recognised. And these seven centres that we work in are really, really important. But in my time, I've noticed how that's grown because I first went to the UN, I suppose it's about 14 years ago. Um, and at that time, um, the big commission in New York, which is known as the Commission on the Status of Women, uh, was really in its infancy we had very small delegations that we sent and it was very new and I remember the first time I went um, as a women's organization we had to queue because if we were going to any meetings in the UN building uh, we had to have a UN pass and you had to queue to get the pass and the first year I did it um, this was in February uh, end of February and New York as many of you will know is extremely cold even then it was actually snowing and it was bitterly cold but we had to queue outside the UN building and the queue lasted for four hours. And a lot of that time I was actually outside. It wasn't too bad for me because coming from England, I was aware of putting on warm clothes. Although, Bev, you live in Chicago and I think you have much colder than I do. Um, but I was OK. But there were a lot of um, people in that queue who'd come from African countries in their beautiful African clothes. But they were absolutely freezing. And there we were standing outside the UN building queuing. But like all good seroptimists, in a queue, you talk. And I remember meeting the most amazing woman in that queue. And I've never forgotten her. Her name was Lily Tapper. She came from Nepal. Uh, she was uh, very small, about five foot, a very beautiful Nepalese woman. Uh, she had been married. Unfortunately, her husband had died. And in Nepal at that time, if your husband died, all your rights went. Your children were taken into the family, but they had to go and live with either the mother-in-law or an uncle. Your property was taken. Everything that you had, all your rights were taken away because you were widowed. And she was there at the United Nations to advocate that widows' rights were important. And I am delighted to say that in Nepal now, those laws have been changed, largely due to this very small lady, quietly spoken. But what, what a, an amazing experience for me, standing in this freezing cold, waiting to get my badge to go around my neck to go into the UN building, but to meet this incredible woman who I've never forgotten in the time. But the the situation at the UN has changed a great deal. We now have an executive director. We have what we call UN women, don't we? So I think you've probably seen changes, Bev, haven't you, in the way that we work at the UN centres uh, in the last few years? I have, Hillary, and one thing the UN reps will tell you is that um, it's no longer, um, the UN no longer wants us to uh, stand as individual organizations, but they do want us to work together in larger groups. So that's why we are in, uh, involved with groups such as the, the UN caucus, NGO, CSW, all of the major groups, because uh, that way, 
all women get to have a voice at the table. Um, but the other thing that's really um, upsetting is that because of COVID-19, so many of our rights are being rolled back. Um, it's, as you know, CSW was canceled last year. This year uh, for 2021, for next year, it's going to be mostly a virtual event. And what this does is it... Um, stops our ability to network with um, member states, uh, with the UN, with workers in the UN, and it somewhat stops our ability to contribute to the outcome document and some of the statements. So our UN reps have been incredibly active in speaking up regarding this. Um, Betty Levy has been instrumental in getting us involved in UN 2020 and the celebration of the UN 75th anniversary. And we've also been involved in several sessions um, to discuss the importance of civil society and that we still need a place at the table and we need to be involved. So we're still working um, to see that our hard-worn gains are not rolled back and that our contributions are important to the UN and to the member states. Yes, and I think, as you say, it's even more important because we all know that COVID-19 has impacted, I think, hardest on women and girls in all kinds of ways. And it is so important that the human rights of women and girls are protected in the post-COVID society. So it is sometimes it can be difficult to think to the future we've had a very difficult or we are having a very difficult year. It seems to be that so many things that we care about are being rolled back. But it does remind me of a story that I, I never forget. And it always encourages me whenever I get, you know, down thinking, well, where are we going? Because the world sometimes seems an impossible place. But I think through something like Sir Optimist International, we, we are able to make a difference. And it's the story, it's probably a story you know very well, but it's the starfish story that I always remember. I remember uh, a very good friend in Sir Optimist International giving me a starfish uh, with a Sir Optimist emblem on it to hang around my neck, which uh, I love. And it was the fact that there was a great big storm and all these starfish were swept up onto the beach and the sea receded and, of course, they were dying. And uh, there was a little girl on the beach and she was so upset about these starfish that she started to pick a starfish up and throw it back into the sea out of these thousands of starfish. And an old man said to her, why are you doing that? What's the point of doing that? And as she picked up one starfish and flung it back into the sea, she said, well, it's a point for this starfish because it's going to survive. And I think it's the, the idea that, yes, you can feel as though you're up against the odds. Yes, you can feel that it's going to be very difficult to make a difference. But every little step we take makes a difference. And it's so important. And that's why I think, and I'm sure you do, Bev, that Sir Optimist International with its hard work, its networking, its centres, you know, representations at the seven UN centres, working from our grassroots and our projects, talking to member states, we can and we shall make a difference. And that's, I think, the call to anyone listening to this podcast. You mustn't be depressed. You mustn't give up on, in this post-COVID world. Things can change, things can improve, but it's up to every single person listening to this podcast to say, well, what tiny little step can I take? What can I do to make things a bit better? And that's my challenge to everybody 
uh, as you listen to this podcast, we can and we will change and improve the world in the post-COVID-19 world. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Bev, for being with me today. And thank you, everybody, for joining in this podcast. Our next podcast is in two weeks' time. So do tune in and listen to another podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to SI Voices, a podcast hosted by Seroptimist International. Follow us on social media for our latest news and updates at Seroptimist Global on Facebook and Instagram and at Seroptitweet on Twitter. You can also check out our website, seroptimistinternational.org. Please join us next time on SI Voices.